Welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. beyond laws and regulations. And you have to use common sense and care and in, in determine how, how a reasonable, reasonable person would act in whatever situation you're faced with. Another suggestion would be to have internal standards and policies and protocols 
in place so that there's no question about what you need to be doing. Welcome to the Aki Sprout Podcast, where it's my mission to create a supportive community for new practitioners of East Asian medicine to provide the information and inspiration you need to get to your vision of success in your first couple years of practice. My name is Stacey Whitcomb. I'm a business launch and mindset coach for new practitioners, a board certified acupuncturist and herbalist. Sports medicine is my jam. And I live in a tiny house on wheels that I built and I've lived here for over eight years. I don't need to crawl into my closet to produce a good sounding podcast. I just record it from my kitchen, living room, bedroom office. Are you a new practitioner and you are shopping for malpractice insurance and you are completely overwhelmed and confused? Did you realize that in addition to purchasing malpractice insurance, that you're also going to probably need liability insurance? And do you even know what that is for? Do you know what to look for when you purchase insurance? Are you going to buy the maximum amount or can you just get by with the minimum amount of coverage? Do you even know what any of this means? <laughs> do you know what nose coverage is? Do you know what tail coverage is? Do you know what license defense is? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I didn't. I researched everything, but I didn't know what all of these terms meant. I didn't know what half of these terms meant. And I'm sure that a lot of you are frustrated because this is not something that you really like, really want to spend a bunch of time on researching and making sure that you have in place. But it is one of the most important things to have in place. So hopefully I can break it down for you in this podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be talking all about malpractice insurance the things to look for when you're purchasing it, how to best set yourself up so that if you get into a legal scuffle, that your outcome is the best that can possibly be. We do talk a little doomsday-ish in this episode. We were even contemplating titling it doomsday, but the truth is you have to take a look around at the possible things that can go wrong so that you can have things in place so that if they go wrong, that your practice doesn't end up in shambles. So let's do that. This episode is a bit of a marathon. It's got really great information in it. So I wouldn't just turn it off if it gets a little rough, maybe just take some breaks. Because like I said, Rachel does a really thorough job of helping us out. And this isn't where you want to drop the ball. So without further ado, We are chatting about malpractice insurance and all things insurance with Rachel Schumann of Council for Wellness. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. Yep. So my name is Rachel Schumann. I am a health and wellness attorney and my practice is Council for Wellness. I'm I'm based in California and I do have plans to expand later this year. I specialize in the laws and the regulations as they pertain to healthcare providers like you and practitioners in the health and wellness industry in general. And I absolutely love what I do. I love that I get to help create and maintain these solid businesses so that my clients are able to focus on doing what they do without worrying about their security and their liability 
And specifically what some things that I help my clients with are things like entity planning, choosing and establishing and maintaining an entity, establishing solid contracts, hiring and employment classification, trademarking, copywriting, and really anything else that that comes up in business. So you're you're located in California. And so how is it that you are able to help practitioners outside of California? So I, that's a good segue into my disclaimer. (laughs) So yeah, so I am, I am an attorney. I am licensed in California. I'm actually also licensed in Florida. So I am able to offer legal advice on laws in these states. And I'm also able to offer legal advice on federal laws like HIPAA. But I am not able to offer legal advice on state law where I, in states where I'm not licensed. So I am really happy to share all of the knowledge that I have, and I hope that I can provide practical information that helps you better understand how you operate your business. But I would like to make clear that while one thing, while I am an attorney, I am not your attorney, and me speaking here doesn't establish any kind of attorney-client relationship. The information that we talk about today is also for general informational purposes only, so Nothing that I say today should be taken as legal advice or advice that would directly apply to any specific set of facts. And I would encourage you that if I say something and it makes you, it raises a question or you want to apply it in some aspect to your own business, it's always best to find a resource in your area to get a professional opinion. And to more specifically answer your question, how do I work with people outside of California and Florida? Um, If someone has a question about federal law, so HIPAA, copyright, trademark, those are all areas that I can work, that I work with clients who are located outside of California and Florida. I have a question for you, Rachel, that was not really queued up (laughs) in our prior conversation, but I really um, am interested constantly in the evolution or the the way that our practices are transforming. I see a lot of people online and um, doing webinars to the general public. And I really appreciate your disclaimer. Is this a place where perhaps those people would need to also utilize a disclaimer? Absolutely. In their webinars, you mean? Yeah, I'm sort yeah. of feeling like like I see some practitioners just as a general public, like I'm going to teach these people like here, I'm having a, a one hour webinar informational series on, say, the coronavirus vaccine. If you are interested, I'm going to charge, you know, $17 for this webinar. If you want to come listen to the, re- you know, my review of the research and some things that you can do to boost your immune system prior to and after or some pra- good practices for whatever. Okay. So I just teed that up, that type of webinar. And so you're attracting your patients, but you're also attracting people who maybe saw you in social media or wherever, and then they come to your webinar Obviously, there's ways to blind the webinar so nobody can see who's in the room. So you can protect people that way through HIPAA because Zoom is HIPAA compliant with a BAA agreement, right? But the the disclaimer part, I think I've seen some some give a disclaimer and some people not. And I'm just curious how and why that's important. Yes. So having a disclaimer puts people on notice about what you are doing. So 
it is in terms of my disclaimer, it is completely possible that someone would listen to this podcast. I would say something in this podcast and they would say, oh, well, she's an attorney. She says that this is what I'm supposed to do. Therefore, I'm going to do it. And then they take action and then something happens down down the road that is bad. Same thing in the case of your your webinar. Someone comes in, they they take the information as presented, they apply it to whatever their circumstances are, and something goes wrong. So a disclaimer doesn't mean you can't get sued or won't get sued. A disclaimer just adds kind of a layer of protection out there. It puts your people on notice that, hey, this is information that I have that I'm giving to you in a general sense that I want to share with you that I that you should take and and if it raises questions, you should use it to investigate further. You should use it to find the appropriate resource or professional to help you with your questions as as this situation applies to you. But it doesn't mean, again, that you can't get sued or won't get sued. You, you most definitely still could get sued. Someone could take your information and run with it. And then you would use that if you were sued to say, hey, look, I, you know, I told them it was just for gener- general informational purposes only. And, and they chose to do XYZ with it. Right. So it's sort of building a case in case you need to build a case for yourself. In other words, I did due diligence. I gave a disclaimer. I was professional about this in my language, et cetera, et cetera, just in case. Right. But also a directional kind of like you're saying, like. Right. Yeah. Like, 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 yeah, use this for what it is, but also use it as a, as a tool, use this as information. And then if you, if you have questions, if this applies to you, then take it a step further, find that resource, find that professional to help you. So I feel like for those of you listening, you might want to grab a cup of coffee because last time during the last interview, this is heady for us. This is really heady for me. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll take responsibility for myself. This is really heady for me. And it takes a lot of concentration because the language is different. And so one of the things that I've asked Rachel to do is we're just going to kind of go over some definitions so that when she starts rolling, you're like, you're not completely lost. So grab your cup of coffee. You might want to grab some paper so that you can take notes because this is important. And it's important when you're shopping for your malpractice insurance that you understand these things. So first of all, let's talk about the definitions that we're going to be talking about. So we're going to be discussing malpractice insurance. So why don't you give a just a quick overview of what is malpractice insurance why we need it. Okay. This is a really dumbed down question, isn't it? We pretty much all know this, but I, let's, let's just break into Rachel's language so that we can, so we can kind of dip our toe in slowly. <laughs> so malpractice insurance is a special type of professional liability insurance that's just for healthcare providers. So professional liability insurance is insurance that covers you if someone says you did something wrong in your professional capacity. And specifically, uh, malpractice insurance covers healthcare providers if there is an an incident where a patient is injured or dies. And that coverage means financial coverage. It covers the costs and expenses associated with the patient's injury, the expenses that maybe you incur to defend yourself, and other things that we'll get more into more later in the podcast. But I also thought it was interesting that I actually didn't know this until recently, that some states um, actually require healthcare providers to carry malpractice insurance 
Here in California, you don't have to. That's not a, a state law requirement. But even if there isn't a state law requirement that you have to carry malpractice insurance, most providers do because it's smart. It's a smart business practice to do. But also because there's other times that you'll be required to have malpractice insurance. For example, if you decide to accept a patient insurance as part of your practice, usually when you sign a contract with that insurance company, they're going to require that you carry uh, malpractice insurance as part of your practice and at certain levels. I had no idea that other states didn't require malpractice insurance. Do they in Washington? I don't actually know. I just automatically assumed like that Mm -hmm. to me, that just makes sense. Why would you even touch another person or stick a needle in another person without covering the potential disasters? Absolutely. I, I, I completely I agree with you. That, that is, that, and I, I just assumed that as well. And, and I don't know, I don't know why I came, how I came to know this, but I started reading ah. about it. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I just assumed, but it actually makes sense. And me as an attorney, I'm not required to have uh, professional liability insurance for me. I, I do because it's smart, but I'm not required to. Okay. Well, so for those people who I, I don't. I hope to God there is nobody getting really giddy about the fact that you might not have to carry malpractice insurance. This podcast is dedicated to why you need to carry malpractice. And I'm saying this also from like, wow, I'm just so floored. I love that you just brought you just you brought that information because I got hit by a car on my bike when I was 30, and I didn't have insurance. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I didn't have health insurance, and the only thing that saved me in that well pff, there's a lot of things that saved me i mean i i got hit i was going like 25 miles an hour and went headfirst into a fire hydrant um oh which goodness. might explain a little bit but yeah i mean like headfirst i ended up i don't know how we're anyway well this is a fun story ended up like flipping off my bike went over the handlebars my finger got cut off i i mean i was immobilized i I told the guys that I was riding with not to touch me. I went to the to the hospital on a board. I spent two hours in x-ray where they x-rayed me from head to toe. I had a concussion, but ultimately, I just have a little bit of neck problems now, like not huge, and I'm missing the end of a finger. No brain damage that I'm aware of. Like super, super lucky. But my, my yeah. point is, it's fun to believe that you're immune to accidents and things going wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a really comforting thing. And I think it's where we spend our 20s. And I was 30 at the time, I think maybe 31 when that happened. And I did spend my 20s like, oh, I'm fine. I don't really need insurance. I don't need the, you know, like or maybe I was just stupid in my 20s. And maybe you guys aren't, but <laughs> I was also I was also a risk taker, very much so. Obviously, I was barreling down a hill at 40 miles an hour. So on a road bike. So my point is anything can happen and it's really important that you protect your patients. So you choose, but this podcast, this, this episode is dedicated to why you should. Okay. Moving on. That was, that was good story time. So I know that when I, when I purchased my malpractice insurance that they also offered business liability insurance. Can you talk a little bit about business liability insurance? Yes. So like you said, it's often offered as an add-on. There's there's lots of things that are offered as add-ons when you buy professional liability insurance, like cyber security and stuff like that is also usually offered. But business liability insurance, also called general liability insurance, um, it provides coverage for injuries or damage that someone 
claims that your business cause that aren't necessarily related to your healthcare services. So for example, general liability insurance could cover if um, a patient or a visitor falls in your office and injures themselves. Or if you are doing a speaking engagement, like on a podcast, and you say something about another business that negatively impacts their business, and they sue you, your business liability insurance would cover you for things like that. Okay. And then I'm just thinking too, all of a sudden, because my my malpractice insurance covers me wherever I go. Like I've contacted my insurance company and I'm like, can you, if I go do a health fair, will you cover me? And they're like, wherever you go, the insurance goes. That's great. Does this somehow follow? This is like a little secondary backup. If I'm in somebody else's building, I don't know. I'm just reaching for like possibilities, like other places where this might be important. I actually don't don't know the answer to that. If it would follow you, I would assume that it would, because if you're doing speaking engagements, you wouldn't necessarily be tied down right. to a location. Right. But I guess that, that may even be policy specific that you might want to just ask sure. your, your policy provider. Sure. And I've also found that this is um, an important piece that if you're releasing space, in a building, they often ask you to carry your own liability insurance. And it's nice just to have it tagged in there already. Yep. Okay. Next definition is license defense. Can you tell us a little bit about license defense? Yes. So it is possible that a patient, a former patient, patient's family, patient's friend, anyone could file a complaint against your professional license. And here in California, that would likely be with the California Acupuncture Board. And what this means is that the governing agency in your state could consider whether you should still be able to practice under your license or whether your license should be suspended or revoked because of something that happened. So defending a claim against your license can be expensive. You might have to hire an attorney to represent you in those proceedings. It's like it's like a separate lawsuit almost. And so having insurance coverage, sometimes in your malpractice policy, it will provide for what's called license defense. And that is the cost associated with defending yourself against someone saying that you shouldn't be able to, to practice under your license. And I just just did an interview with my friend Reagan, who I went to school with, and she reminded me of this story about license defense that we were told in class. She's got such a great memory. <laughs> it's amazing. But the story was about a couple. I think they're actually a married couple. And said the woman was the acupuncturist and she had treated her husband and their marriage went south and he challenged her license because I can't remember what she had done. Maybe she didn't chart. Maybe she didn't, whatever she did, it was not to the extent that treating a quote regular patient would have been to the fullest extent of notation and documentation and clear, I don't know, diagnosis, et cetera. So he challenged her license and got her license taken away. Oh my goodness. If she had this would have helped cover those expenses because because those are some things that could happen. That's, that's, I say that because we, we really need to be careful about treating neighbors or friends. And like, because I know that acupuncturists or, or alternative health care providers are off, often so heartfelt human beings that you just mm-hmm. want to help everybody. So I'm just throwing this out there as a caution. Be, be document everything and be, be careful because that's something that could happen along those lines, too doomsday giver. <laughs> I swear, I swear I did not go through every definition and think of the most <laughs> awful story possible. 
It's nice to hear someone else doing it because usually <laughs> I'm the one telling people, well, these are all the things that are going to go wrong. And this is what you need to do. It's so funny because apparently <laughs> this is all just coming out. I'm going non-scripted. Like I have a little outline of things that I want Rachel to talk about, but I'm going totally non-scripted. And I'm looking at the next the next term. And I'm like, oh yeah, I have a story about that too. <laughs> when you purchase uh, malpractice insurance, there's nose coverage and tail coverage. Can you explain what those are? Yes. So nose coverage covers you for incidents that happen before you had your insurance coverage in place. It's also called sometimes called prior acts coverage. And this usually covers you back to a specific date. So if you have you establish your insurance policy as of January 1st, and it is a year, so it runs through December 31st, but you started treating people on November 1st, the the, prior, the year before, then you could purchase nose coverage or this prior acts coverage to cover you back to when you first started treating people. And that's called nose coverage. Okay. Um, and then on the flip side, tail coverage covers you for, for when you are, for example, terminating your existing policy coverage, but you could still get a claim for mal for malpractice down the road, depending on what your the statute of limitations law. So you so if you let's say you were retiring, you you practiced and you had your insurance coverage and you were retiring, so you ended your insurance coverage when you stopped practicing, but someone could still sue you for incidents that happened during your your policy coverage period, you would purchase tail coverage so that you could still go to your insurance company for coverage for those instances. And I think that's usually five years. Do you know that? I don't know that. I think that I, my, my understanding was that you could purchase it for varying lengths. Mm, mm. So I just want to touch on <laughs> this is my doomsday story. <laughs> okay. So when I graduated, I took a look at all the insurance malpractice insurance companies and did due diligence and hours and hours of research. And the company that was utilized in clinic at school, that coverage was purpose, pur that coverage was purchased in the best interest of the school, right? I, I just really want to point this out because you guys, if you're new, you really need to take a look at your insurance and make sure that you're getting as much from it as you can for the money that's going out and you're not set, setting yourself up for future costs. So in other words, this company that we had in school, people didn't want to research. So they just went ahead and bought when they started, when they graduated and bought from this company. But I researched it and ultimately the company that I went with was a little bit more, but it was also their accessible, their customer service is great. I can call, I can talk to somebody. I, I'm not automated and sent to it different random whatever call centers it's and they're not confusing they're really clear and they're really great and they really get back with you so this other company that people went with had a tail coverage if you canceled with them they charge you $500 for tail coverage and you have to pay that when you sign up with the next company because the next company doesn't necessarily have, I haven't seen nose coverage, honestly, in, in our, and I could be wrong. So if you guys do research, I could be wrong about that, but I haven't really seen nose coverage offered. So you're going to pay $500 with that tail coverage in order to go to the better insurance company when that expires. So, you know, before you graduate, take a look at this before you sign up, take a look at this. And I have friends who had to go back and pay that $500 in tail coverage. It's a bummer. So that's the, that that story isn't as bad as hitting a fire hydrant. Okay. So 
let's talk about this term per claim or aggregate. Yes. So per claim, also called per occurrence, um, is the limit that the insurance company will pay per incident during the term of your insurance policy. It's usually a year. Some some policies are, I've seen are six months. But what that per claim or per occurrence limit is, is spelled out in your policy. And then you have your aggregate limit. And that is the total amount that the insurance company will pay for multiple claims over the course of your policy term. So if you, I'm just picking random numbers, but if you had a per claim limit of $50 and an aggregate limit of $100, and you had two claims during the year, the first for $25, your $25 claim would meet would be underneath your per claim coverage of $50. And then you would have $100 for your aggregate for the whole year. So that that $25 claim would likely be fully covered. Your second claim, if let's say it was $125, it would be over the per claim limit of $50. So only 50 of that would likely be covered. And then the you would only have 75 left towards your your aggregate of 100 so you wouldn't be have met that so your aggregate wouldn't apply yet so but of your second claim only $50 would be covered because it is hitting the limit of your per claim limit does that make sense okay so just don't get sued more than once. Yeah. So make sure, well, if you, if you oh, get but- sued once, make sure it's under the claim. And if you get sued multiple times, make sure it's under your aggregate. But really what you should be looking at when you're picking a policy is to make sure that the per claim and the aggregate limits are high enough for you to be able to keep your business going. So it won't completely devastate you if you, if you were responsible for a part or all of the claim. Right. Cause, okay. So we could jump to this. Like if you were, if you were negligent with HIPAA and all of a sudden you lost a bunch of people or was, we were hacked, then you're going to have multiple claims, right? Cause you're going to have multiple people potentially suing you for a HIPAA violation. Okay. HIPAA is, is not as clear because HIPAA violations may be covered under your policy. Um, that's one, that's one thing to look for to see if, if your policy would cover you for HIPAA violations because it can depend on the, the the facts of the situation. If you were negligent in some way in terms of violating HIPAA, then it might be covered. But but if it isn't negligence, then it might not, not be covered. So it's something specific that you should look for in your policy and talk to your insurance company about to see if that's something that's even covered. This is so much like Chinese medicine. Yes, and. Always yes, and or yes, but. Yes, and. Yes, no. Yes, maybe. <laughs> not now. Like <laughs> it just makes me tired. That one just yes. made me tired. I, yes. Really no way, no good way that um, maybe someone else out there has a better way to estimate. But even when I was choosing my own per claim and aggregate limits for myself, there's, you know, you really don't know what the future holds. So it's hard to, hard to pick. <laughs> okay. All right. Now this next term is so basic, but, but I've noticed that when Rachel gets rolling, it gets it gets complicated for me. So, and I don't know why, maybe this is just me. I'm cool with that. I can be that way. Negligence. Let's talk about negligence, the term negligence, because it comes a lot up a lot in legal talk. So let's, let's discuss negligence. 
It comes up a lot in legal talk, but it actually comes up a lot in regular talk too. It's interesting. I always, as an attorney, because I'm familiar with the term in a legal sense, that people use it to mean many different things in in normal everyday speak. Maybe that's why it feels so complicated <laughs> to me because I'm like my my brain just gets like it's like I don't know throwing spaghetti on a wall like it just all splats and I'm like right. negligence is so big. Everything is negligence and everything is hearsay <laughs> in normal talk. Okay. <laughs> and I and I hear it a lot and I'm like, no, that's not negligence and no, that's not hearsay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about it. Let's break it down. Let's talk about the legal talk of negligence. Okay. So if you Googled negligence, the definition is failing to take proper care in doing something. And that's pretty broad. Uh, in the legal world, it's much more specific. And the legal definition is failing to exercise the care towards others that a reasonable or prudent person would do in the same or similar circumstances. And this is what's called the reasonable person standard. And courts will look at how a reasonable person in the same situation would have acted to determine whether or not your actions or inactions were negligent. Does reasonable sound subjective though? I mean, this is where it gets squishy. Yep. And uh, so so to, de- to determine negligence, it is very fit. Factual. It's based on the specific facts of a situation, who you are, what your profession is, what your experience is, the situation of your patient. It's very fact driven. So basically, this is where they they one would take a look at your scope. Were you in your scope? Two, they'd take a look at like, is this common practice? Is this right? Okay. And then professional, you know, calling in professional witnesses, perhaps other acupuncturists. Is this yep. something that would be commonplace in the store? Okay. Very good. Yes. So okay. courts, when they're looking at negligence, they're looking at, at four things. They're looking at your duty of care, whether or not you breach that duty of care, causation and damages. So they're looking for the duty of care. They're looking to see in your, in this situation that you're in, how would, what, what is the standard of care that you owed? And then in this situation, how would a reasonable person have acted? And if you didn't act that way as a reasonable person in that situation would have, then you're likely going to be found to have breached your duty of care or you have, you failed to act reasonably. Mm -hmm. And then the, the patient would have to show that they suffered damages in some way, whether that's physical harm, whether that's money. And then there would have to be a connection between your, your failing to act reasonably and their harm. That was so helpful. I don't get it. (laughs) Really, really. Negligence is so like broad. And so it's really helpful to be like, oh, what are you thinking about? Like, what are you thinking about legally if you're sued for negligence? And that just was perfect. So great. Yeah. Thank you. Do you have anything else to say about negligence? That was good. I do, but later on. Okay. Okay. So our last, our last definition before we get into the meat of the topic is lawsuit. What specifically is a lawsuit? Okay. So a lawsuit is a claim or an action that's brought before a court of law for a decision to be made. So one way to think about a lawsuit is that someone has been hurt in some way, physical injury, financial injury, or injury of another sort. And that person who's injured is asking the court to tell the person who injured them that they need to make it right. All right, here we go. So let's talk about the checklist, the things that we need to consider when we're choosing a malpractice insurance policy. Yes. Okay. So first, how much does it cost for your premium for the year? Because you're going to have to pay that annually or 
twice a year or however long your policy term is for? And then how much are they going to cover you in the event that you need them to cover you? So like I said, make sure that you're choosing a a policy that has an adequate claim and aggregate coverage for your needs, whatever those needs are. And I think that realistically, that looks different depending on if you are young and the, and the assets you have amassed compared to someone who's been practicing a long time, who has a family, who has a home, who has assets that if they were taken would devastate them not only professionally, but personally. And so consider those things when you're choosing your claim and aggregate co- coverage and what what that number would have to look like if you had a lawsuit, lawsuit or multiple lawsuits filed against you. What, what would you need to keep your business afloat, to keep your home, to keep for everything to be okay? And so then I would also look at which modalities are covered. And so make sure that the policy that you choose covers what you offer. So if you're offering acupuncture and moxibustion and cupping and herbal medicine, make sure that those modalities are covered under your policy, because sometimes in your policy, there will be a list of exclusions, things that your policy doesn't cover. And so make sure that whatever you are offering is included and not listed on that excluded list. I, I know that some insurances will defer to the scope of practice as your as your state laws define it, but there are some that, that pick and choose modalities. So I would just look at look at that and make sure that you're covered. Yeah. Yep. And I've done the research on these and and if you guys go to I, I did a podcast, I did it two podcasts called How to Start Your Acupuncture Practice, the five pain in the ass things that you have to do first and second. (laughs) And I actually, in the show notes listed, if you're in the US, I listed a handful of the malpractice insurance companies. And the ones that I listed are probably some of the better ones. And no, I'm not getting paid to uh, disclaimer. The people who pick and choose what you get to do as far as moxibustion, et cetera, those are not people, but the companies, those are probably not your best bet as far as insurance companies go they probably don't have enough money to cover that type of stuff. I don't know. It just didn't smell good to me. It was, it was just, there's uh, there, there are, there are options and then there are better options. So take a look at those show notes and the, how to start an acupuncture practice. I wanted to jump back a second and cause you were talking about coverage and how much coverage to have. Yes. When, when you're like, you're saying have coverage to cover your self if you are in a lawsuit, I don't, I don't, I don't understand how that works. So, so because, because basically when you purchase malpractice insurance, you're purchasing malpractice insurance. So if somebody sues you, then say they sue you for $500,000 in medical expenses, and then they're going to get also to get, you know, mental and emotional health. Plus if they can't work plus whatever, like the amount that is you're choosing, say I purchase $2 million worth of coverage that covers them. How is this covering me in my practice, in my survival, in my future? I don't understand how that works. So let's say you have a per claim limit of $1 million and someone sues you for $1.5 million. That doesn't mean that the 0.5 goes away. It means means that you're going to have to cover that somehow. And depending on many different factors, your entity that you have established for one, the the reason for the lawsuit is another thing, but it whether or not your personal assets could be a part of a lawsuit, it could be possible that your personal 
assets are brought into a lawsuit and that there's, there's so many different things I'm thinking of, but someone could take your house. There are homestead exemptions, but my point being that how, how much of your personal property are you willing to risk? They could even assess the value of your practice. Right. And make you sell your practice. That's heavy. Okay. It really, it really is. And there's not, and there's not a great way to, I mean, because you don't know what the future holds, you know, so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to think about those things. It's hard to, to estimate that. Yeah. I usually, when I buy insurance, I usually just max everything, Mm -hmm. you know, even, even with, yeah, just max it. I mean, that's what I, I, that's what I learned from getting hit by the car. Like you should have personal injury protection on your car insurance. And if you don't go get it, because that is what saved me, um, was that my insurance kicked in too. And I had $10,000 on, on PIP personal injury protection too. So anyway, I just max my insurance usually. And it's not that what an extra $10 a month for, you know, an extra million dollars worth of coverage. Yeah, I'm in. I do the same thing for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What else? What else when choosing a policy? So we covered, we covered the modalities. So what's next? So there is something called vicarious liability. And that what that means is that based on your relationship with someone, you could be you could be held to be responsible for their actions. And so what I am thinking of in terms of insurance is if you have employees, it, as an employer, you could be liable for errors that your employees make. And so some insurance policies have a vicarious liability coverage that will extend your coverage to to your employees. So check to see if that is included, if especially if you have employees. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What else? So we talked about nose and tail coverage. Those are important to know, especially if you are, if you began practicing before your policy kicked in. I know, Stacey, that you were thinking about whether or not your insurance will cover you for work with pregnant women, which is, which is actually such a, an interesting thing (laughs) because generally, yes, your, your, your policy will, I mean, you should, you should check and see what your policy says, but generally, yes, your policy is going to cover you. If your patient is pregnant, becoming pregnant doesn't necessarily mean that you, you can't treat your patient anymore, but where you should be careful is where um, not to go beyond the scope of practice into something that treatment that would be considered the practice of obstetrics, where if you go beyond your scope, then you might not be covered. Covered, so it's something to look into with uh, your. I'm remembering. I'm totally remembering this conversation in school now. So, and you, you know, you guys, if if you listen and you're like, "Oh, she's totally right," let me know. I'm cool. Hit me up on Instagram. DM me. Whatever. It's cool. <laughs> like, I'm I'm fine with being wrong. I'm fully and I'm fine with being corrected because that's how you guys are going to learn too. So, I recall this conversation. Yes. It, I really think it's important to take a look at and make sure that you can practice with pregnant women. And I think that that what it came down to was, plug your ears, Rachel, how you document <laughs> if you're being asked to induce labor, because we don't technically, Western medically speaking, induce labor. And so I think it was documentation how about what you are and are not doing. We're facilitating, we're not actually inducing labor. We're facilitating a natural, healthy process of balance in a woman's body when she's pregnant. Her body, okay, I'm done. I'm done with that because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole and get in trouble. But I think you just 
be sure to stay in your lane with your documentation and your wording on that. So yeah, my the only other notes that I was thinking about was, um, I know you had mentioned about whether if you were practicing offsite to look into that, if you, whether or not your policy limits you to your your office. And then also we had mentioned to look into if you're leasing space to that most property management companies are going to require you to carry uh, business liability insurance. So to look and see if that's an opportunity for an add-on. And that's also just good practice too, when you're um, looking for a practice space to really ask the company if they're going to charge you things like triple net, if they're going to make you some companies, some buildings will carry their own liability insurance and they won't require you to have it. But in my experience, and unfortunately I moved like three times in my first year of practice or first two years was that they require you to carry it. And so then they also require you to carry a certain amount of it. So these are great questions when you're looking for space. That's what I'm trying to point out here because it could cost you more money than what you're just calculating in your lease space. Okay. Thanks, Rachel. (laughs) Anything else on that topic or should we move on? Let's move on. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about some of the legal risks we face as acupuncturists and how malpractice insurance really can offer some support and protection for us? Sure. So two areas that I'll focus on are negligence and then data security. So with negligence, we've already discussed what that is, but I thought this would be a good place to take a look at what it actually looks like in your practice. So like every day as humans, we are faced we could be faced with someone saying that we've acted negligently in some way. If we run a red light and hit another car, that's an example of how we could be negligent. But it's a special concern and we want to take special care when it comes to our professional license and the health of our business. So if a client suggests that you acted negligently in caring for them, if you owed them a duty, if you breached that duty and if that breach caused them harm, This could drain you personally, financially. It could harm your professional reputation. You could lose your license. So to start, I would look at the standards of your practice that are governed by state law. So it's important to make sure that you are complying with those standards. For example, using sterile needles and equipment. If you didn't use sterile needles or equipment on a patient and it harmed the patient, you would likely to be found to have breached your duty of care, i.e. that a reasonable acupuncturist wouldn't have done that and you would be found negligent. So if you're accused of negligence, your your malpractice insurance may cover your expenses associated with that claim, you know, the patient's medical bills, the cost to to hire an attorney. But understanding what negligence is and 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 acting within that scope, acting within your duty of care that's owed is really is where you need to start and then understand that your malpractice insurance could be there to catch you. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And then data security, specifically what I'm thinking about in terms of this conversation is HIPAA. So HIPAA, it's it's a federal law and it set the, the national standards for protecting sensitive patient information. And as healthcare providers, you're 
you are considered covered entities under HIPAA and you're held to this high standard of caring for and protecting your patient's health information. So some of the ways that you could violate HIPAA are by disclosing patient information to a third party without your patient's consent, disclosing too much health information in violation of the minimum information necessary standard, failing to take reasonable measures to protect your patient's electronic records, And if you violate HIPAA, you can be faced with financial penalties. So I mentioned HIPAA here because some malpractice insurances will cover you for HIPAA violations if it was due to your negligence. Wait, okay. You can have the patient sue you or file a lawsuit, but you can also have HIPAA fine you. So are you saying the insurance company will cover the fine? So actually under HIPAA, the patient can't sue you directly under, I don't know what Washington law is, but in California, we have kind of the sister law to HIPAA and under that state law, which is also a, a health information privacy law, the patient can sue you directly, but under HIPAA, the patient cannot sue you directly. So what you'd be looking at are fines and penalties and that that your insurance may cover if your policy covers that. And also breach notifications and the costs associated with notifying your patients if if you had to do that. Oh, that's so deep. Okay. My (laughs) mind just went, costs associated with notifying all of your patients. Who does that? We do that, right? Like, and what is that? That cost is your hourly rate pretty much, right? Like, and so... So the insurance would cover that. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Anyway, did you have more? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, actually, no. So those are the two main, the, the risky areas where I think that malpractice insurance could really come into play. Negligence, which, which could apply in many different parts of your practice, and then data security. Okay. Okay. So we're covering, we're doing a really good job of covering like a lot of things that, that can go wrong and... <laughs> I just this is so, this is always so draining to me because nobody likes to do this. Like nobody likes to look at like the worst case scenarios, right? Um, right. But if you dedicate like a little bit of time and you look at it and then yeah. you like get a plan, then you don't then maybe you don't have to look at it ever again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I honestly like this is just me. I I have such a challenge with just really looking at the worst case scenarios. I was I did an interview with one of my friends Travis Kern who owns Root and Branch and he talks about everything that he chooses to do. He does go into the worst case scenario prior to making decisions. So this is just where where I skip a beat, perhaps. So what can we do so that if things go wrong, we are set up to sustain the least amount of damage possible? So there is, there's no set of rules that I can tick off for you guys that if you stick to those, that you, that, that you won't be sued or that no one would ever t- say that you were negligent. No one would ever say that you violated you know, laws. I mean, you can certainly look, pull up the laws and make sure, make sure you're in compliance with, with the laws that you're looking at. But understanding, I think, where you should start is understanding the standards that you are held to and practicing within those standards. That that is the number one place to start. So with negligence, understand that as a healthcare provider, you're held to a different standard of care than other people in relationship to your patient. There are in California, there are there are regulations that list out specific, here they call them standards of practice, things like using um an approved disposable needle, making sure that you're making the appropriate referrals. And knowing these standards is vital so that you can tailor your actions to comply with those standards. But it isn't, it goes beyond 
laws and regulations. And you have to use common sense and care and, and determine how how a reasonable reasonable person would act in whatever situation you're faced with. So it doesn't necessarily mean it isn't necessarily only applicable if you're needling your patient. It could be that a reasonable acupuncturist would maintain a safe office space for their patients, wouldn't leave things on the floor for their patients to trip on, wouldn't leave the front door unlocked so the patient's bag is stolen. Understanding that um, that you have a standard of care to care for this other human being and and to act within that standard. And it's the same thing for data security. It's a little clearer in terms of that because HIPAA is a, is a law, is a statute that's written out and you can see your legal requirements there. But there's also room for applying HIPAA to your own business where HIPAA isn't isn't a checklist of things that you have to do. For example, HIPAA talks about having reasonable security measures in place for electronic health records. And that that is should be tailored to your own business. And you should be making that choice of what you think is reasonable for your business. They're talking about physical storage um, and protection of uh, protected health information, password security, using a secure server for electronic storage, knowing when disclosure of PHI is authorized and when your patient authorization is needed. And really what this all boils down to is doing a training or consulting with a legal professional, someone who can explain the laws that are applicable to your business or or even go into your business and, and audit your business and, and look at how you operate and tell you whether or not you're acting within your duty of care. But in addition to understanding your duty of care and making sure that you're acting within that, some another suggestion would be to have internal standards and policies and protocols in place so that there's no question about what you need to be doing. So for example, you could have protocols and procedures in place for assuring that needles and equipment are properly sterilized. You could have protocols and procedures in place for making the appropriate referrals when necessary so that you're not acting outside of your scope of practice. And when I say internal policies and procedures in place, what I'm talking about is the written policies and procedures that usually come in the form of a policies and procedures manual or an employee handbook. Um, And this is important, especially if you have staff working for you, because it outlines the expectations of how things are supposed to run, um, the actions that are supposed to be taken, and it makes clear the procedures for following through on those expectations. The, the contents, if you if you do decide to have a have written policies and procedures, they'll be specific for your for your practice. And there there are definitely some things that you should consider including um, as part of your manuals and handbooks. And as far as negligence and HIPAA are concerned, it's I think it's important to outline policies and procedures for maintaining patient privacy. Um, What is PHI? What limits does HIPAA place on you as a covered entity? How and when you are allowed to disclose PHI? What what do you do if there's a breach? What's your employee's responsibility? If you have supervisors in place, what's their responsibility for notifying you as the owner? And have all this in place so if there is an issue, everyone knows what to do. And if there's a question about what you did, you can show that you've checked all the boxes. Also consider maybe a telecommuting policy. 
with COVID happening, there are a lot of people working from home. So if you're allowing employees to telecommute, have a solid policy in place that governs confidentiality and the employees, how they're required to act when they're working from home, have a section in your manual for a code of ethics or standards of conduct that dictate how you treat fellow staff and patients, how you communicate on behalf of your company, honesty about your credentials and practicing within the scope of your license, maintaining professional boundaries, have policies on maintaining medical records, charting and keeping accurate notes. Something that's really come into play that I've been talking to people a lot recently, including you, Stacey, is having a social media policy. You know, don't post pictures from inside your your office. Don't discuss confidential information or patient information on social media. If you are using social media in a personal capacity, don't mention the company. Or if you do, make it clear that what you're posting is your own opinion and not the company's opinion. Also, it it would be really important to have policies on discrimination and harassment in the workplace, Um, not only to (laughs) tell people just to be a good person and to treat people kindly, but also because federal and state law are very clear about protected classes. So make sure that you have language in your policies that tells people what they can and cannot do and make sure that it's the correct language for your state. That probably got a little heavy, didn't it? <laughs> no, it was amazing. Honestly, that was amazing. In my head, I was like, oh, that could, there's a huge checklist. And that's probably just going to get looped and looped and looped for people listening because they're going to just go through that list and create their policies and procedures manual. Yeah, you totally knocked that out of the park with that question. So anything else on that? So I did kind of want to loop back though on that particular question, like the things that we can have in place to protect us, definitely a policy and procedures manual, a very in-depth one, but also do you want to talk and just touch on like our legal forms briefly? Sure. It will look different depending on your practice, depending on the state where you practice, but there are, I was talking to someone the other day who said that when you hire in California, that it is overwhelming. So I don't, I think that hiring and having employees getting those documents in place is a podcast all on its own, maybe a series all on its own, but they're having, having an employment agreement is really important. If you are having your staff use company equipment, that's really important to have agreements about, not only because it's your property and you want it back. And if something happens to it, you, you want to be compensated for it if it's, you know, their fault, but also because if they start using it for something, you know, to, to discriminate or to harass someone, you want to have laid out clear expectations about about how how company property is supposed to be used. So let's talk doomsday again. Let's talk about <laughs> what it looks like if you get sued. You know, say you weren't even negligent, someone sues you, whatever, like you're getting sued. It doesn't even matter why you're getting sued. What does that look like? Can you still practice while you're going to court? Or I don't even know. What does that look like? Yeah. <laughs> so if you get sued, 
or being sued can look very different for different situations. So I'm going to speak generally here. Getting sued generally means that someone has filed a lawsuit, a complaint against you in a court, and there are different courts for different lawsuits. So generally, the complaint will tell the court what they think that you did wrong, which laws they believe you violated, and they will ask the court to make them whole in whatever sense, whether that's that's financially or whatever other recourse they're asking for. But like I mentioned, you'll get notice of the lawsuit when you're served. And again, that's usually done by someone called a process server who certifies with the court once you've been given notice. And as a side note, if you're a legal entity, like a professional corporation, you will likely be served through your registered agent. I I talk to so many people who just put themselves down or or use a corporate registered agent, don't really know what that means. But that's one thing that a registered agent is used for, for being sued. And then if you get served with a lawsuit, it would be a really good idea to consult with a lawyer because it's probably going to be a lot of paper with a lot of words that mean a lot of things so that the lawyer can go through it with you and explain it to you and um, advise you on, on on what you should do next. What kind of lawyer should we be looking for? It depends on what you are sued for. Okay. A lawsuit can go a lot of different directions depending on... So, so many different. Oh, right. Because if it was, if it was a slip and fall, then it's a property. It's a, it's a more, it's a very different beast than if it was uh, injury due to negligence of um, practicing medicine, Chinese medicine, like a needling injury or something. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So your attorney, they could look at your, at your lawsuit and they could say, oh, they had no reason to file this. I'm going to get it dismissed. And maybe they file paperwork with the court and they argue on your behalf that there's no merit to the lawsuit. And maybe your, your lawsuit gets dismissed by the court, or maybe there is a reason for the lawsuit, but the person who's suing you offers you a settlement deal right off the, the, that, and you take it and you end the lawsuit right there. It's also possible that you use, you go to some sort of mediation and between the two of you, you agree to some form of settlement, but it's also possible that you don't and that you end up going to a trial where both sides present their case and either the judge or a jury decides who is right in the situation. But because there's so many different things that could happen, there's really no saying how long it will take to resolve it. And it could even depend on the judge that your case is in front of if, it, if it's at that point. I have practiced in front of judges who keep their calendar moving along at, at a good clip. And there are other judges who I've practiced in front of who allowed us to pass cases off for months at a time. So it really, there's no way to say how long um, your lawsuit would take to resolve. If you're, if you're, if you're being sued for negligence due to like an, an say a, a moxibustion injury, like you burn somebody, say you're being sued for that. Is your license automatically challenged at that point as well? It depends on, it depends on where you are. It depends on your governing agency. So you could be suspended. Yes. The, your, your governing board has, well, it depends on where you are. So speaking generally, your governing board could have the the ability to suspend or revoke your license. And is that a, and that is once again a separate hearing. Can they suspend you prior to going to that hearing? Yes, probably depends on your state. Yeah, gotcha. sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll only step in it a couple of times. So <laughs> I am listening. I'm listening. I got it. I got it. Okay. Uh, 
Okay, interesting. I'm processing that. Okay, so basically, if somebody sues you, you can get your license suspended. And then that could also end up going to court. So you can have legal expenses for that on top of legal expenses for the lawsuit that's being filed. And you could actually end up not being able to practice because your license is suspended. Exactly. Oh, that sounds like hell. This is awful. Yes, it's so awful. But <laughs> odds are it's probably not going to happen. So yes. that's a good way to think of it too. But be prepared just in case it does. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I had to walk us down that path because I don't, we just don't, I don't sit and think about it. I don't know what it's going to look like if it ever happens. And I don't want to manifest it because I know how you guys think. I'm not manifesting it, but you got to look in that direction so you kind of know and have everything in place and do things right. So say somebody took all of these steps and had everything dialed in, but still was faced with a negligence lawsuit. In California, if a needle breaks underneath the skin, the acupuncturist cannot cut into the skin to remove the needle. Is that the same in Washington? You send them to the ER. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can't cut anything. Like yeah. cutting, cutting is, we can poke, we can bleed, we can, <laughs> cutting, cutting is uh, surgical. No. Right. So yeah, I would assume that's that's the same in every state, but so, yeah. Okay. That clarifies that for me. So in that situation, let's say you do everything right. That happens. You, you refer them to the, to the emergency room or the appropriate healthcare provider. It's still possible that... I mean, best case scenario is that then nothing happens. The situation is resolved. That patient continues to be your patient. You continue on and everything is fine. But it's possible that that patient could still sue you. But because reality is that accidents happen, if you're acting reasonably in that situation, it's harder to prove that you were negligent or maybe impossible to prove that you were negligent because you weren't. But let's say that you did. Let's say you did cut into that person's skin and the patient sued you. The the worst case scenario of where that could go, they, the acupuncturist, I mean, whether you decide, maybe you didn't know that you weren't allowed to do that, or maybe you did and you decided to, to go forward anyways, odds are that you're going to be found negligent because you should have known that you're not allowed to do that. And that's falling below the standard of care that you owe your patient. And so maybe that patient sues you because they were injured or, and, or maybe they're, they want you to pay their medical bills, but either way, you're sued and maybe you can't agree to a settlement. So you go to trial and the court says that your patient is right and that you're wrong. And maybe the court awards a ton of money to your patient that you're expected to pay. That's a bad situation because maybe you have really good malpractice insurance and maybe all of it's covered. Maybe it's not covered, but either way, you're looking at damage to your reputation, financial costs that maybe you do or don't have the ability to pay. And then that bad situation could get even worse because then maybe your acupuncture board gets involved and then you have this other whole separate hearing that you have to go through and defend yourself. It's more time and more money. Worst case scenario. Yeah. yeah that's what you uh, should title, title this podcast. <laughs> I know it is. It is. And it's funny because when you don't go there, I go there. And then when I don't go there, you're like, wait, we have to talk about removing broken needles. from. Let's talk about that and how that will wipe you out. And you will never practice again. It's awesome. You guys, I just want to point out that Rachel's also a yoga instructor. I am. I love it. I love it. There's also a really light side to me. Bringing it home. Okay. Yeah. What else, what else can malpractice do for us? Like what other ways can it help us if we're sued? 
Are there any other ways? <laughs> yeah. So I think most often when people think about malpractice insurance, they think about covering um, medical expenses if someone's injured. And and most definitely malpractice insurance comes into play in that regard. But depending on what your policy covers, your insurance can help you in a lot of other ways. We talked a lot about lawsuits and these legal situations that you might find yourself in. And acupuncturists are not lawyers. So navigating the legal system, whether it's in a courtroom, whether it's in front of your governing agency, can be extremely confusing. So you're likely going to have to hire someone to help you navigate that. And legal fees for appearing in court um, are, are not inexpensive. And on top of those, of hiring a professional to help you, you're also going to have court costs and filing fees associated with the courtroom experience. So your malpractice insurance may may help you, will likely help, help you in that regard. We have talked about licensed defense. And so it's, it's possible that your policy will help you with the costs associated with that. Same thing, hiring a lawyer, the fees and costs. If you agree, agree to a settlement, your insurance may cover that. We talked about HIPAA and about if you have fines and penalties, the cost of breach notifications, your insurance could help you there. But some less known ways that your malpractice insurance could also help you are, are for lost wages. If you are required to appear in court because of um, a lawsuit, your insurance might cover you for lost wages. They may also cover reasonable expenses that you incur as part of your appearance. So things like having to stay in a hotel or transportation. There's also something called deposition assistance that your insurance might help you with. And that is for legal representation. If you have to appear in a deposition that's related to your professional duties and then also damage to your patient's property. So if your patient's clothing is damaged while, while they're in your office or if their purse is stolen while at your office, your malpractice, um, insurance might cover you in that regard if it's due to your negligence. Okay. Cool. I think I think we've we've pretty much hammered this from every angle possible. Any other thoughts before we go ahead and close this down? Yes, I have two thoughts. Okay. One thing we haven't mentioned is that your malpractice insurance insurance is not going to cover you for intentional acts such things like sexual misconduct, criminal acts, fraud, if you if you altered medical records, things like that are, are areas where your malpractice insurance is not going to cover you or likely will not cover you. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that it's important to not get tunnel vision when you're looking at protecting yourself. I hear I hear from people often say, oh, I don't need to worry about whatever they need to worry about because they have insurance. And the way that I look at limiting liability when I'm looking at my client's liability is to look at it as a whole. And I look at it in terms of what defenses can I line up for them so that they are in the best position they can be in to defend themselves if they need to be. So we talked today about, about that duty of care, understanding your duty of care getting those practices and procedures in place and making sure that everyone in your office is on board with those. And then also having those the appropriate documents in place, the patient agreement, your consents, your notices, and seeing malpractice insurance as just another line 
in that defense. It isn't, it isn't, you know, going to necessarily cover you in all instances. So lining up malpractice insurance, the appropriate documents, and then having the appropriate knowledge and procedures in place will give you that, that uh, a bubble (laughs) that will protect you in a, in a, in a whole sense, instead of just focusing on, on one thing. And I think it's probably great to have all of that in one place. So in other words, I've, I've recently just printed up the, my state licensure explanation, you know, like have that where I can pull it and take a look at it if I need to specifically, because there's very, it does get specific and we really need to know and understand what our scope of practice is. So we stay in the lane. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Uh, And then have your policy and procedures manual covering obviously everything that Rachel discussed and then lastly, having those those little firewalls up that um, we discussed with having the legal agreements that we're going to have with our employees and our patients. Yeah. Oh, so much. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I totally appreciate it. You guys, to my listeners, if you appreciate this, please tell somebody else. I know that this is a pretty unique podcast, and I think it's actually applicable, obviously, not just to new practitioners, but to also to practitioners who are already in practice who really need to reevaluate. Because it's a, it's it feels like to me like it's shifting sands, especially when it comes to the technology part and HIPAA and just the way that we're practicing is evolving and it's really coming like going from more of just in-house brick and mortar to expanding into all of these new realms. So be sure that you have everything lined up. Rachel, any closing comments? No, I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's such a, such a huge, huge gift that you're giving. And I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, Spouts, thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, there are three other episodes that Rachel and I did on Legal Speak. In episode 16, we talk about ADA compliance with your website. In episode 21, we talk about how to stay on the upside of legal in a quickly evolving tech world, so everything tech. And then again, in episode 23, for all the disclaimers, documents, and policies you need to have visible in your acupuncture practice. These are all super great resources. If you appreciate everything that I'm doing here for you, could you please share it somewhere in social media? That would be absolutely amazing, and I would totally appreciate it, and so would your fellow acupuncturists. All right, take care. Until next time. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.